from the top, 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 top of the Empire State Building, 97.1 WQHT New York. Hot 97. Get it up. Mornings with Howard and Stephanie on Hot 97. But you didn't have uh, 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 shows where there were nothing but hip-hop artists back-to-back. The powers that be felt that it was safer if you were going to have a black concert, if you were going to have a concert, you had to have X amount of R&B groups and then maybe two hip-hop groups or, or rap groups, as they would say. And that's what, you know, Summer Jam was about, the hottest right now, you know, in this moment. And um, so when that came about, everybody wanted to go because there was no, you know, there was no dead spots. And man, I'm telling you, was that folks couldn't believe that there were going to be, there was going to be all hip hop show in, in the tri-state area. And thus it happened. This is a moment in time. Summer Jam time. If you acting up in the parking lot, might catch one of those. And we wanted to see each other. We wanted to vibe with each other. We want to see you at Summer Jam. So welcome to the world of hip hop. Welcome to the world of hip hop. 1994, two years before the Grammys would begin to grind an award for Best Rap Album. The newly minted New York City hip-hop station Hot 97 decided to throw the city's first and largest hip-hop arena show. That show was dubbed Summer Jam, and the first one was set for June 21st, 1994 at Brendan Byrne Arena with a lineup that included Black Moon, Gangstar, Nas, Queen Latifah, A Tribe Called Quest, Arrested Development SWV, and the Wu-Tang Clan. And with that being said, welcome to Summer Jam Through the Years. I'm Laura Styles, and I'll be taking you through the inception of the first ever Summer Jam. Hot 97's in-house reporter Jason Peters sat down with many of the people involved with the first Summer Jam to see how it came to be. Here, he speaks with legendary hip-hop historian and host of Video Music Box, Ralph McDaniels, about the state of hip-hop in 1994. Well, the music industry was changing. It was becoming more corporate. The industry understood the viability of hip-hop music and that it was selling and that it could be, uh, you know, manipulated and used to sell anything from potato chips to soda to, you know, whatever it was that you were trying to sell. And um, so Hot 97 came along at the best time possible because it was really at the rise of it. And you started to see artists who might have had, you know, you know, 100,000 in sales, all of a sudden now have a platinum album because they had a radio station that was playing their music on a regular basis. Commercial appeal was going on on TV, in, in theaters. You would see hip-hop ads, you know, you were like, wow, hip-hop's really starting to really blow up. But it was, it was a great time for the music and a great time to, you know, be an artist and a fan because there were so many different sounds coming out, all different types of music from all different areas of the United States. WBLS DJ Fred Bugsy Bugs worked with Hot back in 94 and he explained it a little more graphically. Oh man, hip hop had been, had been under the, under the counter. It was like a, like a bunch of condoms when you went to the drugstore. Like, you know, you would go to the, to the, to, the, to the record store and get the 12 inch and keep it moving. Some of the acts had albums, others didn't. But the, the feeling was everybody was there. It was a moment that they've been waiting for the music to be respected. You know, and I mean, 
and the music that wasn't pop oriented. So hip hop was a long way from where it is today. In fact, hip hop had only been on Hot 97 for eight months before the first summer jam. October of 93, we were all hip hop. And, and now, you know, we're going into 1994. We're thinking about what to do. A lot of, lot of hip hop shows, mind you, there were hip hop shows, but they, they were not in the venues in New York. They were at uh, small clubs. Maybe a club held 300, 400 people. Uh, some of the bigger clubs would have the hip-hop acts come through. The Red Parrot at the time on 57th Street. You had the Red Zone and, 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 time, and, and uh, uh, down close to down in the village and, and midtown like 14th Street and a couple of places. But you didn't have shows where there were nothing but hip-hop artists back-to-back. The, the powers that be felt that it was safer if you were going to have a concert black concert if you have a concert you had to have x amount of r&b groups and then maybe two hip-hop groups or rap groups as they would say um hot 97 the team decided well hell we're playing all this music and the artists are coming to us and all and and well maybe we should do something there were a few names bounced around a hoodstock was one of them um based off the idea of woodstock in a festival type and Thank God they didn't run with Hoodstock. Hoodstock. But something that's often overlooked is the amount of work and manpower it takes to carry out Summer Jam. It's far more than just DJs and artists. It's people like... Carl Freed. I'm the executive producer of Summer Jam. I have produced every Summer Jam from 1994 up until this year, 2022, which we will have on June 12th at MetLife Stadium. The genesis of Summer Jam came to us when I was working for another company. So in 1994, I was working with Metropolitan Entertainment and did the first nine with Metropolitan Entertainment. And then starting in 2003 at Giant Stadium, I have done everyone on my own with my company, Travana Entertainment. But in 1994, I was approached by a promoter of, from all places, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, a guy named Danny Zalisco who I knew in my previous, one of my previous jobs, I was executive director of the North American Concert Promoters Association. This is way long before Live Nation. And we had 35 member companies and Danny's company uh, in Phoenix, Evening Star was one of them. And he said he had some friends uh, who also lived in Phoenix who were friends with Steve Smith and Tracy Clority and that they wanted to do a radio show in New York and that they couldn't get Madison Square Garden to do the show. And they came to me because I had a relationship at um, what was then, I think it was the Brendan Byrne Arena. And so initially there was Evening Star, Metropolitan, the company I worked for, and Hot 97. And um, the team here was led by Steve Smith, Tracy Clority, and Rocco Macri. And we all got to be very close friends. Those friendships have lasted 20 30 years now. And so the station did all the booking. And what was really interesting back then was that the artists did the show for free. There was no artist payment whatsoever. Things have changed quite a bit with because of payola and restrictions with the government that now we can no longer uh, promise airplay to the artist for participating in radio shows. So my memory of, and it was great, <laughs> We couldn't do the promotion that we did in 1994 to kick off Summer Jam now. Back then, the station, um, the promo was a bomb ticking. And when, <laughs> so you'd hear the tick, tick, tick. And once the, the bomb exploded, that's when the tickets went on sale. And I think in the first year, in 94, we sold out, 
I want to say in the first hour, and back then at Brennan Burn, the capacity was about 17,000, and we were selling about 11 or 12, maybe 12,000 tickets at the time because we were giving away tickets you know, to fans and stuff. So we sold out very quickly. Because you're, you're talking about a culture, first of all. You're talking about a music genre, first of all, that was only being played on the weekends, you know, from the 80s or here and there or after 3 o'clock on the radio. Or, you know, it wasn't playing overnights because, you know, coming out of the overnights, it was back to the R&B. But on the weekends, Friday, Saturday. Back to Bugsy Bugs, by the way. Sundays, it was a <laughs> the irony about rap, hip-hop records, was when I was in Philadelphia, uh, we put Power 99 on the air prior, just a side, sidebar for a moment. And we wanted to bring a rap show over from the sister that was on the AM, on the AM station. She had a rap show. Her name was Lady B. And we put it on Sundays and we got so many complaints. Why y'all playing rap on Sundays? So I said, I didn't know that you couldn't play a music thing on Sundays, but that's what it was. So, you know, we didn't really play rap records on Sundays. I, I noticed now that I think about it, it was Friday nights, Saturday nights. And then, and then if something became big enough, maybe it made it to the full-time rotation, but then, then, then it wasn't even on in the mornings. The first rap song to go on in the mornings in the 80s was probably Rob Bass. Right? I want to I rock right now, which is on every commercial in the world. So, you know, we come up to date now. It's, the music had been suppressed for so long. It's almost like when you when you suppress something, you keep pushing something in a bottle and then putting the top on, and then you put something in and put the top on, and you put something on and put the top on. When you loosen that top up, it just blows everywhere, and it just went everywhere. The Hot 97 is playing hip-hop from 6, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and everything was playing. We was even playing. We were even playing the unedited version of Cream and was able to get away with it because... On the black program stations, we would, we had, I still is, designated CHR. We were able to do the things that some CHR stations and rock stations would do. We didn't have to worry about the, the preachers complaining about the content of the songs and everything else. We got away with it. Nobody, people eventually got around to complaining, but we, we just broke all the rules. Hence, gave life to the Wu-Tang Clan. They were the face of the station. Uh, the face of uh, Hot 97 were some of the... Uh, underground guys that were underground. Um, you had KRS One that had been big already, and he was actually the voice of, of Hot 97. Yo, what's up? This is hip hop manifesting itself as KRS One, chilling with the number one DJ, Funk Master Flex. All the other DJs sit down. But on that first summer jam, man, I'm telling you, those ticket sales and SWVs, the Wu Tang Clan, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. How was the overall reception to Summer Jam? Like, did you get any? Was there any backlash for this for the decision? Of course, you know the press. Uh, they, you know the the press was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, so far, you know we had ticket sales were fine, all the acts were ready to go, but the press was hanging around Brindenburn Arena waiting for something bad to happen. And I mean, if there was some pushing and shoving or or something and then later on I think a year or two later we had folks that were jumping over the banner barrier uh, the barriers trying to sneak in and that became a big a big news item but there was anything pertaining to hip hop that was on a big level they always was waiting for something to, the detractors were always waiting for the bad news and fortunately we hadn't had we didn't have any bad news on that 94 summer jam they tried to find excuse me tried to find things but 
some of the things that happened were happening at uh, at other concerts as well. You know, people drugged out, people too drunk, puking, carrying on, falling down. You know, it's direct typical stuff. They reported on that like it only happened at the rap shows, but it didn't stop us from doing it. Some people had issues with the culture. Um, some of the older ushers. Um, you remember you're in, you're in the middle of kind of blue collar New Jersey, and that's where their their employees come from. So, but people learn to adapt, and the show was there for the first seven years. Was there any press backlash? I remember the press being fantastic for the for the first few years, and then. As press does, they start having like, oh, you should have had this person, you should have that person, and so everybody has an opinion, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but the first year I think was fantastic. Mr. C. Mr. C. Step swimming. Jadakiss. EPMD. Eric B. and Rakim. Method Man and Red Man. Lord Tariq and Peter Guns. Yours truly the curator, the lit digital DJ Funk Flex on the set. Hosted by Nessa, Ebro, Peter Rosenberg, and Laura Stale. 30th anniversary of Summer Jam. 30% off right now. This offer ends at midnight on Sunday. Tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Oh, you thought we wasn't going to get it right? He's on fire. One of the headlining acts at that first summer jam was the Grammy Award-winning group, Arrested Development. The group was on fire after the success of songs like People Every Day in Tennessee. Arrested Development frontman Speech sat down with Hot 97, and we actually broke the news to him that he was at the first ever summer jam. Thoughts? Because you you'd made it known that you didn't even know it was the first summer jam. No, I didn't know, dude. I didn't know it was the first summer jam. That just dawned on me during this interview. <laughs> like, that was the first summer jam. That's crazy. Wow. How do you feel knowing that you were a part of starting history? I feel great about it. Like, because summer jam has been a very, like, remarkable part of hip hop history. You know what I mean? A lot of sort of many battles have happened via Summer Jam. A lot of the biggest hip hop acts to ever exist have rocked on the Summer Jam stage. So for me, um, yeah, that's 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 really dope to know that we were the first, we were on the first lineup. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, that was real. That's really, really dope to me. So can you take me back to 1994 with you? Um... What do you remember from that day? Was it even remarkable to you or was it just another New York show? Because you didn't even know what it was because it wasn't Summer Jam yet. Yeah, yeah, no. It was remarkable to me for a few reasons. One is we literally got back from South Africa, I want to say the day before that show. So, I mean, we literally hit United States hours before we hit the stage at Summer Jam. And it was our first time to South Africa. So we met Nelson Mandela. In fact, I had spoke on stage with Nelson Mandela to a crowd of probably 30,000 people. And 
to then get on the plane, come to America, and then go do Summer Jam was just mind it was mind blowing for me. Then also some of my favorite groups in hip hop was on stage that day. So I was just I got to be a fanboy in a sense where I remember most like until we went on because we were one of the last. I think we went on right before Wu Tang. You would know better than me, but I think we did. And so before us was Gangstar, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, you could you could refresh my memory, but you know, I want to say Tribe was on that set. You know, so so I got a chance. Like, and I know backstage, my guys uh, De La Soul was there, so I got to meet them or, or hang with them. Tribe was there. Um, you know, Gangstar, which we were label mates, so. For me, it was remarkable because I was in the crowd, like watching the shows of of these people that I've always, you know, admired and loved. And then we got to, you know, get on the same stage. So it was monumental in many ways. Yeah. So I have two two questions about that. And I didn't think I'd be asking this question, but that had to be like two months after the end of apartheid. That's right. So in South Africa, and this is why it was so special, we don't... Like Arrested Development donated money, to my knowledge, the first American music act to ever donate money to the ANC. And we did that in South Africa. Then Nelson Mandela was announced president. Apartheid had just ended. Like it was the people in South Africa were still very shell shocked at this all this new developments that were happening where, you know, they were free for the first time. They had a black president for the first time. It was Nelson Mandela who already was a freedom fighter in their eyes for so many, many decades. So it was just a time of renewal and a time of hope, but also like timidness because they didn't know if this was real. Like if you could imagine, you know, you're in America, right? Yes, I am. So if you could imagine in America, if they said, you know, all of a sudden they said, you know what? There's no more oppression of any groups ever again. We'd all be celebrating, but we'd also be like, is this for real? Like, yeah, how's this what's going happen? on? Yeah, how does this happen? Right. So that's how everybody was. People were timid about this new era. How is this going to work? Is it going to work? But it was also a lot of hope and a lot of joy. So, yeah, to, to answer your question, it was no, amazing. that is, that is, that is incredible. So, yeah, not, not, not like so. Apartheid negotiations ended like April 1994. Two months later, June 94, you're over there. And then yeah. the day after, you got to go do the Summer Jam stage immediately yeah. after. Exactly. We get to New York and we're on stage after just having been with freaking Nelson Mandela. Like that's that's how big that was for us. Uh, it's a busy 48 hours. Busy, busy, busy 48 hours. Yeah. Um, and then my second question was before your summer jam appearance before that, had you ever performed with that, that many rappers on one stage of that magnitude? No. So that was also a beautiful thing. Now we performed obviously with other rap groups, right. And rappers all of our career, but with that many on one stage that had never happened. So Arrested Development's trajectory was such that as a hip hop group, we a lot of times were on lineups with some of the biggest rock acts 
in the history of America, you know, Primus or Rage Against the Machine or, you know, Fishbone and, you know, stuff like this. So, like, for us to be on the lineup with Wu, who was relatively new, and then, you know, Tribe and, you know, Black Moon and, you know, all of this, it was just like um, a relatively unique experience for us, especially on a I think there was probably at least 15,000 people there. I, I don't know, but that's what I sort of remember. Yeah, and to refresh your memory on who was on the lineup with you, it was Wu-Tang Clan, Queen Latifah, Arrested Development, Gangstar, Black Moon, King Just, A, a Tribe Called Quest, Domino, Nas, Sudden Change, and SWV. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah that was unprecedented for for us do so you used to perform with a lot of uh, rock rock acts at that time how did you feel being a part of this lineup especially with you guys kind of having your own spin or like you guys have your own lane and your own sound obviously but to also be integrated with like wu-tang clan and and nas at the same time how did you guys feel like a sense of pride to be representing your sound in that space we felt, I can speak for myself, I felt very happy and excited to be part of that lineup. Because if you could take yourself in a time machine back to the 90s, early 90s, the whole New York, West Coast, that was still primarily what hip hop was comprised of. So the South wasn't necessarily um, deeply respected at that time. It was a different era. And um, so, for us to be on that stage with people that we deeply respect what they contributed to the art form, it's just, yeah, it was it was very um, special. And like I said, I was like a kid. You know, I literally was a superstar, but sitting in the, in the seats with the fans. I wasn't backstage on the side of the stage watching these shows. I was, I wanted to see it from the fan perspective. And I wanted to be in the seats watching the show. So that's, that's the type of for me, uh, excitement that I had about, you know, being on on that lineup. Um, you kind of already did this, but I would like you to, if you could, just walk me through that day and what you remember seeing, who you remember talking to, any any interesting little tidbits like that? Yeah, I mean, for, for us, you know, we were a very well-established group, so we're hanging out backstage with the likes of Nas and, you know, who was, again, not the Nas that we all know now, but Nas, Queen Latifah, we knew forever. We, you know, done shows with her. Tribe Called Quest, Dayla was there, but they just weren't on the on the lineup, apparently. And um, so it was just, it was fantastic. I didn't know Wu-Tang personally, any of the members from, from that crew. So it was just... Um, for me, it was really the backstage atmosphere of just seeing and hanging with people that you love and, you know, you love what they've done for hip hop and, you know, just just sharing our respects for each other and, and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a, it was a good love vibe backstage. Buster was there, too, if I'm not mistaken. I'm talking about backstage. Yeah. And I was going to say it's kind of unique that you guys between you guys, I don't even know how they fit all these people in one place. Between yeah. just you got between Arrested Development and the Wu Tang Clan, yeah, that alone could fill up a stadium. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how anyone else, but that's yeah. like fifty people. 
Yeah, it is. It's 50 people, no doubt. For Summer Jam producer Carl Freed, managing all those people backstage was actually quite a task. Um, what sticks out to me from that show is Wu-Tang Clan and Wu-Tang's uh, production manager came to me in the middle of the show, literally in the middle of the show, and said, I need 30 more backstage passes. <laughs> and it's like, got the show going on. It's like, no, well, we're not going to go on unless you get me 30 more backstage passes. You got nine guys in a band and each each individual got 10 guys. That's their, their guys. So you got 90 people. That's just the guys that travel with them. And we haven't even included their family members, mom, dad, sisters, cousins who are possibly seeing this project, which was the Wu-Tang Clan performing live for the first time. So I gave him the passes. Um, and I think pro part of the problem with giving him those passes ended up with all the blood on the walls in their dressing room. <laughs> that um, they all and their friends um, got together and uh, decided to, you know, as hip-hop, rock and roll, anybody, they like tearing up dressing rooms. And they did, and some blood was shed. Nothing really serious, but it was a, a keen memento of that night. Um, I was going to say, when you say blood was shed, do you have any idea what happened there? It, it was just, there was no weapons or anything. It was just punching, and somebody just broke skin. Yeah, so um, so we christened the, we christened um, Brendan Byrne with, with that that night. Um, Carl Fried had mentioned that they uh, roughed up the the uh, dressing room pretty badly and left, yeah, left some what, blood behind. That's what groups do. <laughs> that's what bands do. They tell you, look, I know about a couple of rock bands, popular rock bands, where where the TV set, the, the Trinity with the Sony Trinitron was in the pool from 35 feet up, and, and the room was, was just wrecked. Mattresses hanging on the balcony and everything else. You know, although the, the dressing room was a mess, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, and and probably because it was in the arena that's made out of concrete and steel, so it was no broken walls. Yeah, it, it, it's a pretty hard. It's a pretty, pretty hard. hard to, <laughs> pretty hard to, to demolish that place. But yeah, I, you know, and I think that Carl, Carl, that was probably a defining moment for Carl because Carl probably didn't expect it. A B. Um, Groups do it all the time, so I wasn't surprised about it. When they said that's what happened, I was like, yeah, well. <laughs> and, and right here is some audio of Carl admitting that he did not expect it. So it's kind of a, a new phenomenon to see, you know, 50 people on stage. I'd never seen that before. Um, and so my memory was kind of like, wow, what do all those people do? And once again, it was welcome to hip-hop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so also, I'm pretty sure it didn't happen again for 24 years. We had a gun pulled backstage. Um, and of all people, it was Queen Latifah's bodyguard. Um, and so it was really, Jason, I mean, so welcome to the world of hip hop. And uh, it was just, I'm not really sure if it was taken out, but it was exposed. Um Guy indicated he had the gun on him. He's protecting Queen Latifah. People kind of step away. Um, the show itself um, was fantastic. And I think that one of the things that why we have stayed doing the show for so long is that the team that I put together when I worked for the other company and then for years going forward is that we, when we could, 
did a great job managing backstage and keeping things as calm as and the show running as smoothly as possible. Backstage might be kind of chaotic, but what happens on stage, we have complete control over and the show, the show kind of runs pretty smooth. Mr. C. Mr. C. Step swimming. Jadakiss. EPMD. Eric B. and Rakim. Method Man and Red Man. Lord Tariq and Peter Guns. Yours truly the curator, the lit digital DJ, Funk Flex on the set. Hosted by Nessa, Ebro, Peter Rosenberg, and Laura Stale. 30th anniversary of Summer Jam. 30% off right now. This offer ends at midnight on Sunday. Tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Oh, you thought we wasn't going to get it right? He's on fire. Throughout this series, you're going to hear a lot of the wild stories from backstage, but you'll also hear about how unique the Summer Jam crowd is. Let's speech explain. Summer Jam was highs and lows for us. The lows for us <laughs> was that we got booed on stage. Not by the, it was by a small group of people, but, but it was by a group of people that had some weight. So like you could hear it. And we got on stage and before we did any songs, there was some booze from the crowd. And that was, it, it reminded me of the Source Awards that would happen a few later, a few years later, where, you know, Andre would get, you know, Andre and um, Big Boy would get on stage and people would boo. And it was like, or even when Snoop and them got on stage at the Source Awards, and people would boo. And it was like, it was this energy of still like, you're from the South. And obviously, Summer Jam brought us, so it wasn't a Summer Jam issue, but. There was, there was still a little bit of beef in a sense with the New York crowd with accepting groups that weren't from New York. You know what I'm saying? It was it, it was still in that era. You know what I mean? And, and you guys just played through it and fought through it? Played through it. In fact, I laughed at it because I knew we had love because we won two Grammys already by that time. We won NAACP award, two MTV awards. We've been in New York and performed for packed crowds like a hundred times by then. So we knew New York had love for us, but it was one of those scenarios where I guess, you know, either it was a little bit of backlash because of all the success that Arrested Development had, but, or it was just a New York type of thing where it was a bigger crowd than the shows we normally did in New York. You know, we did clubs. So our clubs were packed, sold out all the time. But to do a stadium was a little different. You know what I mean? It's, it's a different audience that's coming. And, and I guess they just weren't feeling the fact that we were from the South. I think the, the one of the tricks with a show like Summer Jam, and this is probably something they learned at the 94 Summer, this is the first one, so this that there's yeah. a learning moment, um, is the diversity in crowd. With crowds that big, like, yep. what are the odds that the person who wants to hear Bring to Ruckus also exactly. wants to hear people every day? And exactly right. Know, That's exactly right. There is a Venn diagram, but... Facts. Facts. And, you know, I mean, I personally love when lineups are diverse. You know what I mean? Because I feel like then Wu-Tang steals some of our crowd. We steal some of Wu's crowd. And everybody gets satisfied nonetheless because everybody's still going to hit the stage. You know what I mean? So 
I like that, but yeah, I agree no, with you. It's it's great of you to share that information because yeah. there's not a lot of videos or 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 it, like proof of anything that happened that day. So if you didn't tell me that, no one would have ever know <laughs> except yeah. for the people that were there that you got booed in Summer Jam. Yeah, yeah, we did. We got booed. And like I said, it was like if there was 15,000 people, I would say 1,000 booed. But that but that that's, thousand, that's still a goddamn chunk. Exactly right. It's a chunk, you know what I'm saying? So it felt it felt weird and it felt out of place, but it felt it was like, okay, well, we, you know, we're scheduled to do an hour, so we're going to we're going to do what we do. And um, you know, we did. You got to remember Wrestling Development hit like in 91, 92. So now and they were getting plenty of airplay. They had like three songs off that album. Mr. Wendell, um, Mr. Ah, Wendell, right, Mr. Wendell, they had uh, Everyday, Everyday People. People, and it was something else. Another one. Oh, Tennessee. Tennessee, Tennessee. 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 I played it on my other show. But yeah, but they, so they had three songs that were playing. But I think that it wasn't that they didn't like Arrested Development. I think that it was the fact that they were already on the radio all the time. And a lot of these groups that was on Summer Jam we're not the groups that you were hearing all the, on the radio all the time until Hot 97 signed on. So I think there was more about that. There were a lot of people digging them, but the, the boo, you know, boo, boo is a lot uh, louder and boisterous than yay. So yeah, he had said that it, it was, a, it was a small subsection of the crowd, but yeah. uh, they said that they, they were last on before Wu Tang. Right. So that probably had something to do with it. Well, because it was the show went long and they wanted the Wu Tang. And I also w- was shocked to hear that they had an hour long set. There's not a lot of hour-long sets nowadays at Summer Jam. No, uh, sometimes Wu-Tang had an hour-long set, you're saying? Uh, Arrested Arrested Development. We didn't know. I guess guess they didn't know. Um, They had a couple of songs. But by the time, what happens, too, with with a lot of groups, by the time they get to, and this is what's coming up on our next album, that's when the booing starts coming because people want to get to whatever's going on next. All right, we heard all your good shit. Now, you can go now. Who's next? That's, and, 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 it's, and once again, the first all-hip-hop concert, and they were looked at more or less of being an R&B group than a, than a hip-hop group at the time. By the way. Yeah, you're getting booed the day after meeting Nelson Mandela. Exactly, right? That's like, but isn't that life? Like, I don't know. I don't know your life, but that's my life. Like, you know, you I, have I, this, don't, I don't think there's many other people that have that experience. Speech. Well, not that experience, but I'm saying like mountaintop, you know what I mean? Like mountaintop experience. And then something happens the next day like that. It was like, what? You know what I'm saying? So, The first Summer Jam had everything from bloody backstage walls to fans booing Grammy Award winners. Everyone says that anything can happen at Summer Jam, and it turns out that's been true since 1994. Get ready for some backstage stories and behind-the-scenes looks into Summer Jam surprises throughout the years. This brings us to the end of our first episode about the first Summer Jam in 1994. Next episode, we'll be talking about the year that Summer Jam jumped to the next level. 2001. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Summer Jam through the years and tune in next week to hear about the year that changed it all. I'm your host, Laura Styles, and special thanks to our guests, Speech, Bugsy Bugs, Carl Free, the legend, and Ralph McDaniels, as well as Hot 97 reporter Jason Peters. To close out this episode, Jason asked Bugsy Bugs to tell us what Summer Jam did for hip hop. The audience. 
no longer felt disenfranchised. It, it, you know, if you, you're a hip-hop fan, and, and I still am, but you felt like, you know, our shit's being represented. And, and Hot 97 was the icon for that, to be the first radio station in New York, albeit there were some stations in, in Frisco, KMEL, and, and stations in D.C., uh, KYS, and uh, PGC that were all hip-hop top 40 stations where the numbers dipped because the music changed and they changed the format to a, you know, accommodate, to adjust to the marketplace. But in New York, why a lot of stations didn't go all hip-hop especially if you were a black-owned station, which WBLS was that I programmed, was that they were worried about Madison Avenue not really giving them the, the financial, uh, the, the accounts needed because they were playing rap records. And because folks didn't think that hip-hop was going to be around. As a matter of fact, there were some people, uh, former broadcasters that were on Hot 97, who were no longer a part of it, that would say, yeah, y'all be all right for a year, be all right for a year or two, but that shit ain't going to last. Uh, or uh, Freddie Colon, my good friend, he, he said, "I bet you, you guys won't even won't even come up a share of a point in six months." He said, "If it does, if they do, I'll take you to lunch. If they don't, you take me to lunch." Well, he had to take me to lunch. So there that's was- how it changed. It changed because it legitimized. We became hip hop became more legitimate. Hip hop was just as important as anything else, or maybe even more in many respects. You had a lot of R and B groups that wanted to put a rapper in the group or have uh, hip-hop in the middle of their records now. So it was really becoming a commercial, commercially viable uh, commercially viable genre. And I think that's an incredible way to start the 2001 episode because what could be more legitimizing to hip-hop than the biggest pop star on earth showing up to Summer Jam? All right, Michael Jackson. Has anyone ever referred to Arrested Development as the Afrocentric Wu-Tang Clan? Never. You would be, if you're doing that, you would be the first to have ever. <laughs> I think that it is. New York City. Hey, yo, this is Fabio Foreign. This is New York. This is a place where I was born and raised. New York. Summer Jam means so much to me. Always going to see all our favorite artists. Everybody on that big Summer Jam stage. You never know what you might see at Summer Jam. At one time. Hot 97 Summer Jam, June 12th. Get your tickets now at hot97.com. Slash Summer Jam, baby. Mr. C. Mr. C. Step swimming. Jadakiss. EPMD. Eric B. and Rakim. Method Man and Red Man. Lord Tariq and Peter Guns. Yours truly the curator, the lit digital DJ, Funk Flex on the set. Hosted by Nessa, Ebro, Peter Rosenberg, and Laura Stow. 30th anniversary of Summer Jam. 30% off right now. This offer ends. 